This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, unlike others, is not giving up to inflation. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me is the, I won't say ever inflated, that sounds unkind, the ever impressive Andrew Page, the managing director and founder of strawman.com. Mr. Page, good morning. <laughs> the ever inflated. I love it. Well, yeah, I, I, I kind of didn't think that through. I was trying to work out some way of getting inflation into the description and nothing sounded good, so I'm going with that. <laughs> I've, I've been called worse, so don't worry. <laughs> Indeed, as have I, mate, as have I. Uh, there are worse things than being inflated. Deflated would be worse. So That's let's exactly. Let's I'll take inflated. inflated. <laughs> How are you, mate? Yeah, really good. Yeah. Had a good um, week? Uh, look, it's it's been a tough week um, it's been on the market. big week. Yeah. Oh. Uh, lots, oh. of, lots of stuff sort of happening, but uh, it's yeah, never a dull true. moment on the markets, which That's is what I like. So, you know, there's always something to true. always something to worry about. <laughs> exactly. Let's get into exactly that, mate. Things, speaking of things to worry about, uh, we have to start off with the macro and with, well, Ukraine. Uh, no way around this one. It is mm. absolutely just, the markets have been so incredibly volatile. We're recording this on Thursday morning uh, and... As with all current events, recording a day and a half before this goes to air is uh, challenging because, frankly, who the heck knows what's going to happen between now and Friday afternoon. But this is where we find ourselves. Um, mate, uh, It's so the, the impact on markets has been, I'm going to say fascinating with, a, with an asterisk. Um, I am ever, I've said this regularly, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. I'm ever fascinated slash annoyed slash intrigued slash... Um, I find it ridiculous the way that markets move around by you know large movements both directions to and fro given uncertainty given what may or may not happen I I'm used to it like it's not it's not a case of like wow that's amazing I've never seen that before it just what what annoys me most I've said before is the impact it has on the retail shareholder right the people who watch the so-called professionals do this for a quid and then say oh market must be telling me something and the longer I do this the more the, the more I realize how frankly stupid and uninformed and how ridiculous it is that the market tries to price in impossible to know outcomes with really, really big swings as a result. So we sit here on Thursday morning, the US market closed last night down 1.84% on news that not much has changed since yesterday when shares were up because things weren't as bad as people thought. Mm. And you kind of process that and go, we, we knew Ukraine was going to be a thing. It then turned into a thing and shares went up. That it kept being a thing, and shares fell one point eight percent. And you kind of go, I don't know why. I'm, I, I like I, I don't. You know, I don't really care about what the market's doing per se. It just really annoys me that other people who haven't had the experience we've had, or maybe the education, or both, look at that, and then a, it hurts their super or their investments, and they think, man, I'm poorer. That sucks, and it does suck. And then it's that kind of think of what the kind of thought of, oh right, so what am I, what I have to do when this next happens is X, or what the market's telling me is Y, and it's just like. I don't know, mate. I can't think of anything more stupidly, ridiculously useless, mm. unless you disagree. I hear you. I hear you. You're, you're talking there. You reminded, you reminded me of the subtitle of Dr. Strangelove. You know, it's like how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. And and I, I'd sort of like borrow that and twist it a bit and sort of say how I learned to stop worrying and love the market. Because <laughs> I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, yep. At the same time, I wouldn't have it any other way. Like if you if Fair. you think about it, Fair. The, you're you're lamenting the lack of rationality on the market. <laughs> but I would say 
yeah. very hyper-rational market would make it very, very difficult for stock pickers to, yeah, to outperform true. because everything becomes sensibly priced. You, you, I love this. <laughs> I, I definitely feel for, for, for those yeah. that, that might not be- That's my issue, but yes, yeah. like, you're right. But you can't, right. I mean, it sounds, I, I, don't know what, I don't know what solution there is for yeah. that. And I do get, it sort of seems crazy, you know, on one hand, the market's down on Ukraine and then it's up mm. massively because, oh, it's not as bad. And then it's down. It's sort of- <laughs> It, it is a consequence, as you say, of it's just so hard to price. It's it's not that yeah. the market's being silly per se, but it's just it's trying to wrestle with a whole mm-hmm. bunch of different thoughts and outlooks and expectations. And it's just sort of that's the vol- that's why there's volatility because it's just very difficult to kind of price. And you know, remember, I, I just you know uh, a nice simple example here over that whole period of time, Woolworths is just you know people run in and pick up their bread and milk and baked beans, and no, nothing nothing changes dr- <laughs> dramatically from that standpoint. So it's it's a question of it's a question of what you want to watch. And what's what's been nice about um, recently is that we're in we're in the thick of uh, reporting season. Mm. Um, so there's actually given us a lot of things that we are far more sensible to focus on. So, yeah, the, <laughs> the price and the indices are moving all over the place, but I'm getting <laughs> that right. once every, you know, a, that twice a year sort of opportunity mm-hmm. to, to look under the hood and, and see see what these companies are, are doing. And that, that's yeah. that's been a nice welcome distraction than, than just watching the price. Fortunately, <laughs> oh, I, I, I completely agree with you. As, as an individual investor, I, I really couldn't care less. Like, I, you know, you and I have been doing this long enough that it doesn't actually worry me other than it just – you know, the frustration is, A, as you say, for people who look at this and then are influenced by it when they really will learn eventually not to be. And that's a tough learning curve. And what worries me is some people don't learn it. The other thing is when I get asked semi-regularly to explain it, you know, so what the market's down, why is that? And honestly, the answer most times is because people are idiots. Mm. And you can't really say that on TV or radio, mm. and that's fine. And I don't mean, I, I mean, I, I actually do mean it reasonably <laughs> pejoratively because mm. um, not that you can say someone's an idiot without being pejorative, but you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, I'm partly kidding and partly just entirely serious because the the movements that we see, the market's down, uh, the US market, I just had a quick look, pull the numbers up, down 12% now. Again, this is Wednesday morning. Thursday morning, sorry, since the beginning of the year, which actually, fun enough, was almost the one-year high. It was the 3rd of January, mm-hmm. so it's kind of a nice nice benchmark. But down 12% and people, what's going on? What, why, why is the market down? And the honest answer is, as you've said before, by uh, who was the quote by? I think uh, Abraham Lincoln or something. It will it will fluctuate. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of that idea of, it's not Abraham Lincoln, by the way, if anyone's paying attention, we're just having a, a laugh about Morgan, the fact that we that often, often, yes, often forget who said what. Uh, but it's Morgan, you're right. Uh, yeah, just, just, just that sense of, you know, we try and explain it. The honest answer is because no one knows either, even the professionals who... Otherwise, people assume know what's going on and, and know how to price these things. There's this really, and this is the great, to your point, mate, this is a great opportunity for us, right? Yeah. It, the, the, the so-called smart money that we all, but people all talk about. Well, the smart money must know, so they're doing this. So we can't possibly, it's like, no, no, actually, if you look yeah. at the market over any length of time and you compare the short-term stupidity with the long-term value creation, I'm, I'm going to say to you, the smart money is very, very rarely wearing a suit in a glass-fronted building on Bridge Street in Melbourne or, or Sydney. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's very hard to argue that is the smart money, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, the real answer is that when someone says, why does the, why does the market gone up or why has the market mm-hmm. gone down today? Mm-hmm. So in the case of the former, it's like, well, buyers were, were more enthusiastic to transact. <laughs> right. And right. when the market falls, sellers are the, the more motivated party in that yeah. transaction. Yep. Now, the reasons behind that will be wide and varied, and it's an aggregate. There'll be some people out there who are selling because mm-hmm. they want to buy a new car. Mm-hmm. There are others out there selling because they're in a panic. 
Some there are selling because they've got a margin call. There's, just, there's a whole bunch of reasons that are sort of so going trying to on. pretend they know what happened next, so yeah, they want to sell, so they buy back later at some lower price or something else. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. I've often yeah. I've often thought you know we're all acting within our own sphere of mm-hmm. of, uh, of awareness, you know, and it's mm-hmm. just like we we try and feel as though there's this sort of. Uh, semi-coordinated consensus out there that are making all these decisions. It's, it's really an emergent property of, of millions and millions of people making individual self-interested decisions and we just sort of see that play out at a higher level. And we do, we're storytelling animals. We want to wrap a narrative yes, around exactly. all of that. And exactly. But that's the truth though. The truth is is that on any given day, if prices go up, it's because I mean, it's, it's like a house auction, right? There's, there's, a, there's a bidder, yeah, totally. there's a vendor, you know, if, if there's lots and lots and lots of bidders who are really keen, then the price will go up. If the seller is really desperate to get out and buyers aren't that keen, it'll go down. And and it's just that that is the real reason. What's behind that? Sometimes it's pretty obvious. Other times it's not. Just forget about it. And this this is why I'm just always banging on about this idea of having this independent mm. idea of worth and value because that's that's a far better thing to 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 focus on because I I don't know why or when the market is going to do something but I hopefully have a reasonable ex, a reasonable idea as to when it gets uh, to an interesting uh, when it when it represents an interesting proposition for me personally because it's all it's all about me mate it's all about of course it is, of course it is. Uh, you are the straw man after all you're not one of the straw men you are the straw man so uh, it's all about you mate um <laughs> let, let's let's go then to the question because despite everything we've just talked about uh, Ukraine is a thing. Market down 12% in the US. I'll do a really quick live search right now because here's all the research we do at the uh, at the Monthly Money podcast. Uh, the Australian market, well, the US market is down 12%. The Australian market is down 5% year to date. Less than the US market, which is probably nice, partly because of tech stocks being a different weighting here than there. And if you're a tech stock or a growth stock owner, you know exactly what the last couple of months have been like and it hasn't been pretty. For I, all wish, that, I wish I was only down five percent since the start of the year. <laughs> oh, mate! Oh, I'm I'm swimming in red too. It's a, it's very ugly. Um, Ukraine. What did what does it mean? What do we do? How are you thinking about the market? About investing? About share prices in the context of the uncertainty of Ukraine? Yeah. So I think the first thing to make note of here is it, it, it's the uncertainty itself that's that's driving that. That when 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 things are a little less clear. No one's got a really good idea of how this is going to unfold. And let's be honest mm. about this. I mean, there's a, there's a million pundits out there sort of calling and predicting and all of this stuff. We right. just don't know. Anyone who's ever read a history book knows how, <laughs> you know, these yes. things just evolve yes. in totally yes. unpredictable ways. So I'm, yeah. I'm certainly not going to answer your question. It goes, right, Scott, this is what this is what Russia's going to do and Putin's grand plan is this, but don't worry, he's going to do this and markets are going <laughs> to react in this way. Just, I've got no idea. I've got absolutely no idea. I, I feel... Mm. Um, I feel as though it, it but it, one thing I do know is it, a lot of people are going to be nervous. A, a lot mm-hmm. of people are going to have a much clearer idea as to what's going to happen next. And that is going to lead to a lot more volatility and more on, on, you know, balance of probabilities, mm-hmm. lower prices. Um, I, I'm fond of that idea. Here's <laughs> another saying I can't attribute, but you know, this, <laughs> this idea of this too shall pass. Yeah. Um, it will. How was um, that Shakespeare? It might be. Let me, let me look, look that while you chat, John. Yeah, but it, but it will, right? And you 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 are very fond, and for good reason, of talking about oh, the uh, the Vanguard long term chart. I am. And one of the I things that they put on that chart are various wars. You know, so we had the Gulf mm, War, mm, we had mm. Afghanistan, just in more recent times, but even mm. further back than that, and they definitely have an impact on markets. <laughs> but they don't they don't um, they don't stop the relentless upward long term march. So I guess I just, 
I, I think it's fascinating to watch. I think it's you know there's it's it's just a hororable. I should point out it's a horribly tragic mm-hmm. situation and it's sort of easy yeah, in the comfort of Australia to sort of yeah. look at your smartphone and go, oh, I wonder what this means to my personal portfolio. <laughs> you know, people are going to die. It's really, really horrible. I yep. really don't like what Putin's doing and it's madness and all of that kind of stuff. But this is a finance podcast and in the context of a finance podcast, I, I, I don't think that you do anything differently. I think this is okay. – whether it's a war – or, or whether it's a recession or whether it's higher inflation, it's just people tend to think that when these new things come onto the radar, then you switch to this approach <laughs> and then something else happens. And ah, now's the time to switch to this approach. You know, you rotate out into from growth to value or you cycle into defensives versus cyclicals or whatever. And I think it's, I think it's crazy. I think when you've got a very uh, one of the luxuries of being a long-term investor <laughs> is that your strategy never changes. Prices will change, but mm. but the approach never does. Mm. And so I just, I know I, I cringe when I say this because I feel as though people are just like sighing and rolling their eyes because like, oh yeah, that's your answer to everything. But it is, <laughs> it is my answer to everything. I feel as though I've got no idea what's going to happen. There's, a, there's companies that I hold, which I don't think will be longer term impacted. There are other companies I'd like to hold, um, but I just feel as the price is too high, I'll probably get an opportunity if things get a little bit worse. And I'm, I'm just, you know, same old, same old. Just, just, just continuing to play that old, that old hand. Let me ask you the question though. You talked about the rotation, which I hate that word too, uh, from val- from growth to value. It is unmistakably, I think, underway. How long it lasts, how deep it goes, all that kind of stuff is an unknown question. But you and I have just talked about, and we have for a couple of weeks, the <laughs> the um, carnage frankly, in tech stocks and, and the recovery to some degree in, in so-called value stocks. And again, mm. I desperately hate those labels. I think you pretty much do too. But yep. th- that, but, but it's also unavoidable that there does, well, in aggregate, that is, th- that, that's almost factual. I don't think anyone's really disagreeing with that. No. If, you, if you knew that was happening, would you not consider changing your strategy, saying, well, why would I keep buying tech stocks if I know the market hates them right now? What's the, you know, if, if, if value's in the ascendancy, wouldn't it be smarter to buy value stocks right now and take advantage of that growth rather than buying something and saying, well, the market hates this stuff. I'm going to buy it because it's going to go down more. That mm. feels a little bit crazy to some people. I think we've got to be careful in our language. So you sort of say, you know, this is happening. Well, I, I would rephrase it. It's like, well, I know what has happened. Yeah, I don't true. know what is going to happen. True, true. So they're, they're two very different things. And so what, what I think one of the flaws of that that way of thinking is that, yes, I mean, factually, historically, we can look back and say over the last three months, that would have been a better thing. But then to therefore <laughs> yeah. assume that you can just naively extrapolate that and that will continue, <laughs> I think that's, I think that's, I'm not saying you're saying this, by the way, but I think no, that's, that is, that is the very difficult yep. part. I, I would yep. actually argue that a lot, and we've said this previous uh, podcast, that, a lot of these big falls were absolutely warranted. Like they're yeah, really enough. crazy sort of valuations there, and it's a lot is hidden in in these these indices. Within that, there are some tech stocks that have fallen 40 percent. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. to switch out now just on a broader um, uh, rotational kind of strategy might be doing it after the fact, <laughs> you know. And if, if the problem was always one of valuation and not one of business quality. Well, that 
problem has kind of gone away to a large extent, mm. unless you feel mm. as though things remain significantly undervalued. And you do have to look at it at, at a stock-by-stock stock level because within that there'll be some stocks that have fallen 50% and will fall another 50% from here. <laughs> there are some that have only fallen 10% and might jump up 40% from here. So you've got to look at it on a case-by-case case basis. So to answer your question, no, I'm not absolutely doing that because I'm always looking for value, whether the market's in a good mood or a bad mood. All else being equal, there's more likely to be more things that are good value now. <laughs> but on purely on a on a thematic kind of basis, I think that's really a wrong, uh, a, really a, a flawed move to make. If you're making that move because you think right now, from where I sit, there's just far better risk reward opportunity in these mm. stocks that are so called value stocks, mm-hmm. then by all means do it. But don't do it for the sake of doing it is, 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 is what I'm saying. And don't think just because something has happened over the last few months that therefore it's guaranteed. You can just, you know, as I say, naively extrapolate that and that will continue to be the case. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. But I, I, asked, I asked the question a little bit spuriously just to, to illuminate that. Start a rant. That, you know, if you, <laughs> if you want to, but, you know, it, it's the question that people are asking, right? There's a rotational for value to, to grow, or to growth value isn't, isn't now the time to buy value stocks. And I think you're, you're absolutely right, right? You buy stocks that, are, that represent attractive prices. I won't say the word value because that gets caught up with the label of value. But, mm. you know, our, our job is always to buy companies that we think are underpriced relative to their futures, whether they're hyper growth companies or the most boring value companies in the world. If they're cheap relative to what the future value is going to be, then of course you should buy and them. And buy it. Which, yeah. is, which is why the label is stupid. Whatever right? label they have. Yeah, it's the whole Charlie right. Munger thing. Right. Yeah, growth and exactly. value are joined at the hip. I, I might like growth. I absolutely love growth, but I still want to, I still want to Buy it at a price that represents value. You know? Correct. And and your point, we don't know what's happening next, right? So when people say, "Oh, it's happening," you you answered perfectly, which is we don't know that it's going to keep happening. Yeah. <laughs> what's coming next? And I, the other thing I'll just say quickly is, if you think you do know what's happening next, then just be careful that you're not kidding yourself. Not you personally, Ram, but our, our listeners and anyone, because that's kind of the point, right? Well, obviously, it's going to keep happening. Really? How do you know? Well, I just think it is. And sometimes you're right. You go, see, I told you. Sometimes you're wrong. You go, well, I didn't know I was wrong then, but that's okay. Don't, don't I, I'd point people to March of 2020, you know. Yeah. We all knew what was going to happen then. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know, the world was going through a mad, you know, I love crazy new point. pandemic yes. that just hit yes. the world. The market's down 30%. Yes. God, who's buying under that scenario? <laughs> Why would you buy for? Yeah, move into exactly. defensive, you know. Yeah. And what yeah. a terrible move that would have done because it wasn't like, so, it just, it bounced. It was just a perfect V. That, yep. That's there, so yeah, it's 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 you 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 can't bank on those kinds of things happening. I see this. Well, I see this a lot. I've I've, I've experienced this previously. So when when markets start to have corrections or crashes, the natural move is that people move to defensive stocks. So the stocks that you know, the Woolies, uh, the, the 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 companies that have very sort of dependable earnings. Mm. The trouble with that is is that. They do tend to fall less in a, in a correction, but by the time you realise you're in a correction and everything's kind of moved down, mm. you're you're actually moving your money into these stocks at exactly the wrong time, because when you when you when you look at the recovery, <laughs> although they are the stocks that don't fall as much, they're also the stocks that don't come back as much as well. Mm-hmm. The real opportunity is to get. I think when when it's it, you know. It's always darkest before the dawn, and when when things are there's blood on the streets. You actually want those more cyclical uh, type of businesses because you get this lovely recovery in earnings, which helps drive the price higher. And then as sentiment improves, you get a higher multiple on those earnings. You get this sort of leveraged, not leveraged through the context of debt, but leveraged just through how the the mechanics of it work, this gain. So if you if you go back to any any bear market, choose your choose your poison and then say at this point I'm gonna buy the safest 
most defensive companies, they're the worst stocks to buy at that point in time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Every time. Yes. Yes. Now, and now, that, were they were they the great were they the stocks to hold yeah. as the market you know before the market crashed? Yeah, yeah, totally. But we're kind of not at that point, are we? Or unless you think we are, I, I guess. But that's and that's what you had to have known, right? Yes. It, it's easy in hindsight to say, oh, obviously that was the high, and obviously at that point there was going to be a change to, from you know growth to value. Mm. People are saying that for fifteen years, right? Yeah. If you if you've if you've been if you've been buying value stocks waiting for the rotation since 2000, you've, you've absolutely been you having your backside handed to you. Yep. And again, the same may be true. This might be a 10-year move back to value or it might be a 10-week move back to value. Mm. You literally cannot know in advance. Yep. Last question on Ukraine. It, what, if anything, does it change about the sorts of assumptions we should make about the companies we own? So Ukraine, volatility, share market prices, one thing, that's the behavioural part of the market that we live in and how we should respond. Mm. The other thing, of course, is that the businesses that we own shares in or potentially might look at owning shares in will, some of them, be impacted meaningfully, some tangentially, some not at all, by events like Ukraine. Yeah. And we'll ask about inflation in a minute, so we'll hold that that one, but same kind of question in a minute. Um, are you are you factoring in different risk scenarios, outcomes, opportunities when it comes to that reality of of actual slash potential conflict in Ukraine? I think it brings that consideration more to the fore. I, I think whenever I am considering buying a business or holding a business, I, I like to think in advance of what can go wrong. It's very natural when you're buying a share as you focus on everything that can go right. <laughs> and you need to think about that too, because you need to have a bull case, but it's also very yeah, much exactly. a consideration of, well, what what could go wrong under this situation? Mm-hmm. Now, I'll be honest with you, mate, stocks I was buying a year ago, I didn't have any, nothing was on my horizon of, oh, mm-hmm. there's going to mm-hmm. be sort of a, a war in, in Eastern Europe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but yep. there, there comes a here is a huge edge that you can have over most investors, and it's it's not really that that um, much of an epiphany. But just understand your business, right? Like what what know what you're buying and why you're buying it. And I think I think that's a Peter Lynch quote. <laughs> Almost certainly, probably wasn't. I'm getting that wrong, but I think it's I think when when you're in that situation, okay, you might not have anticipated this particular risk. But by having a very thorough understanding of the business, mm. its products, mm. where it operates, its geographies, its supply yeah. chains, its customers, the value prop, the, the, the economics of the business, all of that kind of stuff, it allows you to react in a much faster way than someone who has to go, oh, my God, I didn't think of mm. What does mm. this mean? How, how does this impact them? It's like, well, mm. I tend to have a very, very, very deep understanding of a very, very small number of stocks and a very <laughs> peripheral understanding of everything else. And you look at a lot of sort of the pundits on TV, they're sort of an inch deep and a mile wide. So they're sort of like, oh, I know a bit about this company, but they don't know any one particular mm-hmm. company well. So sort of a jack of all trades and master of none. My advice <laughs> for stock yeah. pickers is always just go deep on the things that you really know. Mm-hmm. Because although you, and, and certainly think about risks in advance, and all, but although you can't anticipate every single risk, just by having that huge degree of familiarity, familiarity and intimacy with the business allows you to contextualize new risks that come along very quickly. And and in most cases, actually in all cases, in my particular case, having uh, un- seeing what's unfolding, which at the mm. moment I- I've just come to the re- realization that yeah, while it will impact sentiment and price, I'm finding it hard to draw a direct line between any direct and lasting impact. Mm. Um, which makes me feel good. <laughs> and and if, if it was in a situation where actually now that I think about this 
and it's perfectly okay to change your mind, by the way. You should you should change your mind if you've realized you've missed something. Then by all mm. means mm. get out. But make it make it make that considered decision on how does this impact the business. And by the way, how does not how does this impact the business over the next three to six, 12 months? <laughs> how does right. this impact the long-term earnings capacity of the business? I, I guess that's how I think about it. What 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 do you, how do you how do you uh Cut that onion. Yeah. Is that a, a real phrase? I don't know. It is now. It is now. I like it. How do I cut it? How do you cut the how onion? Cut Trademark that, onion? that one. <laughs> JP Morgan and Yogi Bear aren't having that one. That's an Andrew Page original. Mark Twain has said it, I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, this too shall pass. I did look that up because I do research here. Uh, turns out, depends who you believe, it possibly has its origin back in the works of Persian Sufi poets, oh. such as, and excuse my pronunciation, Rumi, Sanai, and Attar of Nishapur. I think it's in the Bible as well. I think I've heard so. Yeah, it's it's a, it's one of those ancient mm, wisdoms, mm, mm. and it's it, yeah. I think actually now I'm remembering. I think one the 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 uh, the story goes that a king said, "I want a phrase that I can use under all times and all situations that will always <laughs> be true." And the wise man came back and said, "Here it is," and it was you know a piece of paper. This too shall pass. I Which like I just it. love. I love it. There you go. There you go. Uh, I also like the uh, the idea of the uh, the man. I think it was a bloke. Was a bloke who would walk behind the was it the the Roman uh, generals uh, who'd just come back from winning wars and they'd say, "Yeah, you are mortal. This too shall pass. You know, uh, this, this will be over." Yeah. Just the idea of rem- remembering that it may be a good time for us to think about in both directions uh, when things are great, when things are terrible. This too shall pass. Yep. I like yep. it. Um, to answer your question, though, mate, I. <clears throat> I tend not to worry too – well, it depends on what you invest in, right? So to, to, like you, I don't invest in much stuff that's exposed to geopolitical risks in Ukraine. So, you know, in terms of the business value, as you say well, – It's, it's actually hard to think uh, – sorry to interrupt, but it's, it's actually hard to think uh, – you almost need to invert the question and say, name for yep. me the ASX yeah. stocks that have a <laughs> yes. direct – impact of this. Sorry, but go, go ahead. So, so the, well, the answer that's what I was going to get to is actually energy is one, obviously. Mm-hmm. And if you're investing in energy stocks, you obviously, well, I hope obviously, but you need to know that these things are super cyclical and super volatile. And so the oil price is going up. Petrol's two bucks a litre, which is just bizarre. Mm-hmm. I used to fill I used to fill the old Kingswood station wagon up with $20 or paper $20 note. That's how old I am. <laughs> uh, and uh, with, so, you know, it's- With your it's seashells or of those yeah. payment or- <laughs> Well, I didn't have to fill it up at all. I said there was a hole in the floor. I just ran like flavor and so it was great. <laughs> uh, it's uh, you know, so you know that that's that's important. What I what I think we like in all investing, like in life in general, I think it use, is useful to think about second order impacts. Mm. So we think about is the Ukraine a big deal? No. Dot dot dot. But and I'm not even sure we should allow for those buts yet. But I think it also is just worth being mindful of the fact that this may or may not be the end of the road for this particular conflict, right? Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting there's necessarily going to be a European invasion or, or military conflict, although those things are possible. But if you think about what might happen as a result, does it impact globalization? Does it impact tariffs and borders? Does it impact supply of things like long-term gas, for example? A lot of, a lot of gas that powers Europe comes out of Russia. Yeah. yeah. And so does it impact the European economy? And so there are, you know, should... There's, there's two ways to look at this. Firstly, can you understand the potential impacts? Yes. Secondly, uh, can you can you can you evaluate them with sufficient size, scale, and duration to invest on them? That's a whole degree harder as a question. Yeah. And then there's the question of even if you could do all those things, how certain are you, and how exposed are your companies to it? Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of you, know, you need to be you need to be a little bit careful. What I would say, Ed Vesely, who works with us, you know, Ed, yep. um, showed us a chart of the U.S. market around the time of the Gulf War. 
and it, cr- it goes down, down, down until the Gulf War starts and then almost on a dime the market starts to climb. Yeah. And so the irony there was actually, and I'm not saying it will happen again this time, the point really is the bigger one, which is you can't know how companies, will, governments will respond, companies will respond, markets will respond. Uh, I, you know, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're interested in a Ukrainian retailer, you should absolutely think about it, right? So yeah. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, it never matters, don't worry about it because that's absolutely not true. But it is worth thinking about how likely am I to be able to determine what the impact is going to be, question mark. Mm-hmm. And again, mate, your, question, your example of COVID is brilliant because it exactly was, even if you knew everything about how the COVID was going to unfold, there was nothing in those. If if you literally said, "I have I have been given by the grace of some god, the case numbers and the border closures and everything's going to happen in the world between now March of 2020 and January of 2022," I'll give you all that information. We're doing this in February, by the way. Mm-hmm. I'm saying January is in the beginning of the year. Uh, you with even even knowing all that stuff, could you have who could you have imagined how share prices would respond? No, there was no basis for a a, a real world linked. Response share price wise, in the sense that, and in fact, I think I think it might got share prices right. I think they absolutely lost its mind in February, uh, early March, but it got it right because we. And I've said this before many times, but it, it's worth repeating. Jeremy Siegel, the Wharton professor, said on I think it was CNBC in the US that even if every US company's profit went to zero for a whole year, that means the market should fall ten percent. Mm. And so you think, well, hang on, how likely was that? Not very. Mm. If it, even if it was likely, okay, shares will fall 10%. They fell 35%. Mm. So the, the, the expectation, the, the, the maths just never worked. So when the market overreacts, that's fine. But those people who sat on the sidelines, I've said this before too, waiting for the coast to become clear, missed a massive opportunity to make money on the way back up. So uh, to your point, I, I'm not doing anything differently. If I was particularly exposed to a business that had business, I, if I owned a Ukrainian retailer, I would have sold its shares, right? I, I don't think you want to start playing chicken with that stuff. Sure. Now, maybe it gets super cheap. Maybe you want to have a straight out punt of, hey, this thing was a $10, now it's a dollar a share. Um, you know, at some point, maybe it comes back, maybe it does, or maybe Russia takes Ukraine and nationalizes all the retailers and you don't make a cent. So at some point, you kind of go, okay, well, this is the risk reward is either too uncertain, which is enough, by the way. You don't have to own everything for the sake of it. If you don't know, feel free to sell. Mm. You know, if, if you literally can't have a view on the long term value creation of a business because things have changed, that's one really great reason to sell your shares. I'm yeah. a long-term shareholder. I don't. Mm. I very rarely sell, but that's a great. If you look at it and go, "Geez, that's changed. I really can't set the odds on this future." Then great time to sell. Yeah, it, that, I think that's a really important point. It doesn't need to be. I'm strongly. I have a strong view one way or the other. Mm. The mm. I don't know is a very very powerful signal, and I've actually. It's one of the things I feel I'm pretty proud of. I've gotten a lot better of. There's, there's things I've sold that just. Not because I, I had any, oh, this is definitely not going to be good. It was just, I just don't know. I, I've, I've no longer had the conviction. And that that alone has been something that saved me a lot of money. And this, there's also been cases where I've said that and it's like, oh, it turns out <laughs> it's gone really well. But I still think that that's just luck, right? And you never you never want to trust in hope and luck when it comes to investing. We want to certainly minimize yeah, those. Exactly. But I just yeah. imagine that, that point though. Imagine again, I came back in a time machine at the start of 2020 and I said, hey, Scott, I'm from 2022. I can tell you in the next two years, something like 980,000 Americans are going to die of this virus. It's like, you know, what, 2,000 people died in 9-11 and think of how how big a deal that was and and obviously very tragic and, and, and all the rest of it. But then I say close to a million people are going to die in the US alone. They'll be burying people in in um, parks. You know, you're just like, what? You know, that is, that is, that would blow your mind and you would rush and you would sell 
everything and be totally justified in doing it. But that's that's what's so diabolically tough about these kinds of macro maneuverings is that even as your point, you can't know what's going to happen, but even if you somehow could know what's going to happen, you can't know how the market's going to react to that happening. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's it's sort Absolutely. of like exactly that's yes, that's my point. If that's you, if you so gave you the hard. absolute facts, yes, you couldn't you couldn't work out how quickly you know, things would change and how the markets might. I just say react to those that news. That, that's why again, it's so simplistic and it's it feels laughable, it feels negligent, mm-hmm. and the rest of it. But I think yeah, a, a really right. good starting point for a long term right. investor is. Over it sounds it sounds probably naively optimistic, but overall, I think humanity will continue to prosper, mm. and that we as a collective will, will you know there's always horrible things and stupid things happening in the world, and there's you know two steps forward, one step back. But I think you know if you feel as though the future is better than the past, mm. that's 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 really the, the 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 best argument you need for for continuing to invest long term. Because within, right. yeah. within all of that, God knows what, what kind of crazy stuff's going to happen and all kinds of tragedies and, and things can get really bad and stay really bad for a while. But so ever long as that, that long-term optimism is true, you've got a reason to invest. If it's not true, by the way, we've talked about this before, you name me an investment that's that's actually going to do well. If, if we're talking about the collapse of, you know, <laughs> gold, gold's going to be useless beans. for you. Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know what you want to yeah. invest Who in? Who wants it? You want to invest <laughs> in guns, you know, lots and lots and lots of guns if yeah, you think yeah. we're entering a, ma- a Mad Max scenario. There's no sort of shorting or hedging or any kind of, <laughs> you're screwed. So it's the kind of- preppers will finally rise. You, you, yeah. you kind of yeah. need to have that, that yeah, kind of yeah, optimism yeah. and invest on that, that basis, I think. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The next one, next question, next issue I've already alluded to, but this is one that is really, really, really real for us and present and current and not a question of will it, won't it, although there is some element of how bad it will get. The question is inflation, of course. And I just want to share some thoughts I shared with some of our US members. We've talked about this a little bit in the past on the podcast, but I just want to kind of, I've distilled down some thoughts. I just sort of quickly share those and I'll get your response to Mm it. Um, I've been asked about, okay, inflation's here. How do do I invest in times of inflation? And I've kind of, there's no no formula, right, at all. But if I think about business, and, and so, you know, why do we care? Well, firstly, business costs will go up. And so you need to be mindful of that. Interest rates will probably go up if inflation goes up. We need to be mindful of that. Uh, so the first thing is what's going to happen if we have constant inflation? Well, it changes the dynamic. We haven't had inflation in a meaningful way for more than 20 years, and I want to say almost 30 years. That means most people investing today have never invested during inflation. And if you have, you've probably forgotten it because it was three decades ago. So if you think about having a business in a time of rising inflation, let alone investing, but it's the same thing because we're investors in businesses, I think three things I've, I've come down to focusing on broadly and not every one of them and not in perfection, but three areas of interest for me or, or things I'm looking for in, in this environment are firstly growth. And that seems obvious to everybody, but if you're not growing, you are so much more susceptible to cost creep mm-hmm. because if you can't, if you can't get... So what growth does, it, let, it lets you fractionalize your costs, mm. okay? If your business doubles, then the CEO's salary as a proportion of sales halves. Assume mm. the CEOs get paid twice as much. Let, let's assume that some, mm. somehow it's rational. Um, if you have a plant that's making widgets, the cost per widget falls in half, at least the fixed cost does, because you only got one, you've got one plant still and it's doing its thing. Mm. If you're a software company, it's even better than that because you've already built it, you're selling twice as many units of it. And yes, your employees' wages might go up, but if, you're, if you've got growth as a business, that is the single best 
a way to offset that cost inflation, particularly those fixed costs. And when I say fixed costs, everything is variable in the long run, but electricity, rent, staff, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Best way to fractionalize those costs is to grow. Yep. And so you can't necessarily stop those things growing. We've seen lots of tech companies, by the way, mate, the last couple of weeks, as you know, cite labor costs going up as yeah. a real headwind for them. It's really hard to get growing. good developers, yeah. Right, but if they're growing fast enough, that'll do the job. Yep. Second one for me is pricing power. This one should be obvious to everybody. It's huge. It's always been one of those things that we say is important, but we've never really had to worry about it in the last two or three decades. Because, mm. yeah, we always want it, but it doesn't matter if it doesn't. Not really, because it's not trying to stay ahead of a, of a fast-moving bogey. In this case, this is inflation. And so if, you're, if you, your product costs 10, you can sell it for 20. Great, sell it for 21. Well, great, you increase, increase your margins a little bit. But if you've got an ever creeping, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here. If you've got, if you've got a, you know, a caterpillar on the leaf and it's slowly eating away and eating away and eating away at the leaf, the leaf's got to grow faster than the, the caterpillar's eating, right? Yep. And so, how's that for a good analogy? That's not well, as good I as like your, that uh, cut the onion, but cut we'll go onion. with it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so, so you've got those costs increasing. You've got to stay ahead of those costs just to stand still. And so business gets harder. If you can, if you, if you're an oil refiner, speaking of, um, of oil as we were before, the global price will be the global price will be the global price. The moment's going up, that's fine. It'll go down at some other point. Normally, that's hard enough. Mm. When your costs are also creeping up, you've got this rising waterline, right? And so let's me, let me mix our metaphors. If you can't keep yourself floating above that waterline, if you can't keep raising the, let's go another one. If you've, got, if you've got a dam, you can't keep raising the sides of the dam, eventually it overflows. Mm-hmm. And if your dam overflows and that's costs and you've got no pricing power, it just eats up more and more of your profit. So pricing power lets you in theory, should have always been true. Some businesses have been able to increase prices, which is great. But it becomes even more important when you've got a cost line that's chasing you. You know, every time you turn around, it's a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Can you've I, got to push harder to get ahead of that one. What you know, I read it during the week, and now I've, I've gone blank. But it was either Amazon or Netflix or something. JP increased. Morgan. <laughs> it was one of it was one of those um, yeah. big yeah. tech comps that they they increased their prices. On the, I think it was Amazon on the Prime subscription. Okay. So it went from 20 to 25 or something in the US. So mm-hmm. please, please write in and let me know if I've got it wrong. But the point is, is that they, <laughs> for what for the consumer is, oh, 20 to 25, that sucks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever. I'm still going yeah, right, to right, keep right. paying it right out. Uh, <laughs> you, you, have, you have just increased your top line by 25% for that business segment. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Think, think, about, think yeah. about it in percentage yeah. and think, think yeah. about that and how much that, I think it's yeah. Amazon, that, 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 that they make from that segment alone. That's pricing power, right? So are they facing Huge. cost pressures? Huge. Yep. Is, is their cost base gone up by 25%? Nah. You know, <laughs> that, now, now are there other companies that can't do that? Uh, yeah. There's most companies, they're, they're, they're an unusual beast and they're out there, but they are the exception to the rule. And as, I just want to double down on your point. Pricing power is super, 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 super important. Mm-hmm. And if, if you've got a company that, that has that, it just, it mitigates a lot of, of risks. Yep. like that a lot, mate. Last one I'm going to mention is um, if you think about the, the impact of not necessarily directly inflation. In fact, if you've got debt, inflation's great. Because, <laughs> you know, if you've got a house, if you've got a home debt, we're not going to talk about property, Andrew. But, if, you know, if I borrow a million dollars for buy a house and my wage goes up because inflation goes up, but my, my, my debt doesn't go up, it stays the same amount, mm. then I've got more and more money to pay off that debt. So actually inflating debt away is something that's been done for years, literally centuries, by different governments at different times. But, and that's fine. So if you, you know, firstly, you might say, well, companies have a lot of debt. As price go up, great. The debt gets smaller. Hey, how good's inflation? Except that central banks don't just say, that's fine. Knock yourselves out, guys. They say, uh, let's make that debt a little bit more expensive. Then a little bit more expensive than that. Mm-hmm. And you talk about inflation, mate, of going from 20 to $25, an increase of, of 25%. 
if official interest rates go from 0.1 to 1%, the interest rate just literally went up tenfold. Yeah. Now, not interest bill necessarily, mm. but the rate increase is massive. Mm. And so if you have a business that has a lot of debt on its balance sheet, it's got to pay an interest bill every single year on that debt. And as that goes up, that is also going to eat away at the profit you're otherwise mm. making. Mm. Whatever your level of debt is now, whatever the interest bill is now, imagine it goes up by 25, 50, 75% over the next two or three years. A little bit of debt, yeah, you might notice on the P&L, you might not. A massive amount of debt, that is going to hurt like buggery mm. and then so on and so forth. Yeah. By the way, quick one before I finish and I'll let you jump in on this, mate. Um, when you look at the cost of debt and you look at interest rates going up, be very, very careful. These things have a long, long, long lead times. Mm. So if I'm, you know, Phillips Incorporated, yes, I'm paying a certain amount of interest, but that interest is probably fixed at a rate for two or three years. Mm. So when rates go up this year and you look at Phillips Incorporated's balance sheet and P&L and you say, oh, their, their debt cost didn't go up too much. That's pretty good. Okay, well, that's, I can lock that in then. The debt's not going to roll over to 2024, 2025. And when it does, I'm going to have to roll over that debt at a much higher interest rate. So people will say, rates up in 2022 or 2023. Look at the P&L. Phew, thank good that cycle's over. We're done. Don't be fooled into believing these companies are not going to have hits in 2024, 25, 26, 27 as they roll over that debt and have to lock in a higher interest rate than they're currently paying. It is going to be a long-term drag. And just as an investor, if you're looking at it, don't take this year or next year's P&L and assume that's as bad as the debt costs get, even if rates stop going up. Because those fixed rates, like a mortgage, fixed, you've got a five-year fixed mortgage in year six, that's going to revert to the then current interest rate. The same will be true of companies and they will have to pay a lot more. And that will be uh, two, three, four, five, six years worth of increases, mm. bit by bit. Uh, just make sure you keep that in mind a couple of years after all this talk about interest rate uh, increases have passed because it will still be a burden on the P&L and an increasing burden for most companies in all likelihood. Oh, there's, there is no greater peace of mind than having shares in a company that has a, a fortress balance sheet. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. sort of, you could argue that they're not making, they're not working the balance sheet as hard as they could. And a lazy balance sheet. Lazy, lazy balance, balance sheet, sheet, one of those terms. So one of the companies I hold shares in have for 10 years or so, and a company called Nanasonics, and mm. they've got $92 million of cash, zero debt. Mm. This, is, this, is a, this, is a, this is a business that, that makes, I think, I made $60 million in the last half. I mean, they... And they and and they and they actually the last half they sort of I don't want to get into the weeds but generally speaking they're free cash flow positive kind of business like I, I don't care what happens to interest rates so that it's just sort of like this business is never going to have to pass around the begging yeah. bowl yeah. to stay afloat it's it is so so much cash just sitting there another company I've got Ava Risk Group sold a big division millions and millions and millions of sitting they don't know what to do with it they're going to give it back to shareholders in the form of about sixteen cents per share you know like these these companies. Are uh, not immune to the machinations of, of the market and volatility mm. and all the rest of it. But in terms of the business itself, rock salt. Things have to go really bad before <laughs> you're in serious trouble. So I, I agree on those three Nicely points. Done. Pricing power, strong balance sheet, uh, growth, really, really good things to try and, and focus on. At, at all times, not just now, like you're making a point well, like sort of now, but yes. I, I would say at all times, yes. that's a great yes. thing to have. I think you're absolutely right. My, my point was just largely from that perspective that um, always important, but always important largely because of the upside, right? If they've got price, you might get more upside. Mm. This is to some degree downside protection. I love what you said about debt because when things are good, no one thinks about the debt. Oh, it'd be fine, it'd be fine, it'd be fine. When things are bad, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right, debt does matter. 
And the time to think about that, you know, the old time to buy straw hats is in winter. Mm-hmm. The time to prepare yourself for the for the coming, you know, hurricane or flood is not when the rains start. You know, it's 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 being ready in advance so that you are prepared. And we spend a lot of time, and rightly so, mate, looking for upsides in our in our investments, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the next business could double or triple or quadruple? That's absolutely what you want to look for. But being mindful of and preparing for and being, you know, at least at least allowing for the downside in your investment ideas is super, super valuable. Think of the GFC. Name, name, uh, what is yeah. the one thing that all the companies that didn't survive that period <laughs> have in common? Debt. The way too much debt. Yep. That, that, you know, whatever the business model was, whatever the sector, yes, yep. each situation is specific and unique, but but mm-hmm. except for the fact that it was it was debt that 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 killed them all in the GFC. And and those companies, Another. every like a lot of companies had some a real tough period there, but ones with the strong balance sheets survived. Mm-hmm. And in fact, bounce back better and bigger than ever. Because the other thing yeah. you get to do, this is, here's the other nice thing about a really strong balance sheet. So when when things do get really tough uh, and, a, and a good number of your competitors that go to the wall mm. and all of a sudden you just swan in yep. with your massive yep. wallet and just basically say, well, I'll pick you up at a fire sale price. Thank you very much. So you actually, mm-hmm. you actually find that on the other side of it, you've got less competition or severely weakened competition, mm-hmm. some that you've probably been able to sort of even, even acquire and steal their clients, et cetera, and IP and all the rest <laughs> of it. It's just, yep. it's so, it's such a great thing to do. Don't, there are always in our game, there are always exceptions to the rule. I would say something like Transurban needs to have a lot of debt um, and is justified in having uh, a, a, you know, a reasonable amount of debt. They can, they can service that. So it's very different to a mining services company that has a debt equity ratio of 200%. They've vastly <laughs> different beasts. So I'm not, I know that there are nuances there, but you know, wherever possible, nice strong balance sheet. It's, it's, just, yeah. it's just a huge tick. I'm going to say just quietly, Matt, even on Transurban though, they're not going to go broke on the back on the back of that debt, but they've got so much debt that if rates were to increase meaningfully, Transurban's distributions will be cut. There, there is no choice, right? Because whatever margin they're making now, when they have to pay 25, 50, 75% more interest bills, there is no other option. There's, well, no, there's no magic cash reserve. I hear what you're saying and you're right and it's going to have an impact, but here's, here's the genius of Transurban. When they are negotiating with governments, and let's let's face it, when the government and Transurban are in negotiations, there's one party that's <laughs> <laughs> has far more uh, savviness and long-term thinking and the rest of it. And so they no, have, they have, they have quant- so within <laughs> their agreements, they are inflation and CPI-linked price increases. So yes. while it will have an impact, absolutely it will, um, they they will just turn around and put the toll up on on their roads, and they can. It's mandated, and it's contractually agreed to. Yeah. Ah, but here's the thing. Uh-huh. Here's the thing. For every hundred dollars of toll revenue, they might make an extra three percent, another mm. three dollars mm. in tolls. When they, so they are they are inflation linked. But if you've got debt and your cost of service debt goes up by fifty percent, while your revenue goes up three percent, that's true. That's a very different scenario. So the, the my concern, I'm not saying they're going to broke anytime soon. They're not. You're right. You're absolutely going to increase their tolls to, to make good uh, on, on the cost of inflation. So cost inflation for the rest of their business, the bloke's got to work on the roads and the asphalt itself and the new bridges and whatever else, that's absolutely going to be not linked to inflation, but you know impacted by the same amount. Mm. If your interest rate goes from 1% to 2%, you just double the cost of your debt in terms of every every year paying it off. So there are yeah, you got to work out what those two lines cross absolutely, and that's that's exactly important, right? So they're not going to make a loss anytime soon. They're not going to go broke anytime soon, I assume. No. Uh, but uh, so that's why I said specifically. I think distributions may be absolutely yes. at risk in terms yes. of sorry to be cut to be really really clear, not not go to zero. But I don't know how they can afford to maintain the current distributions given. It, that sort of outcome potentially, and that's also maybe fine. You might be happy with that because you might say, "Well, if they cut it by twenty five percent, I'm still in a good place," and that's completely fine too. 
Just just making the point that even some of those businesses who can justify having the debt in the first place doesn't mean they're untouched if and when the rates do move in the wrong direction for them. Yeah, yeah. I, a big part of their growth, I would say, over the last 10 years has been falling interest rates to, uh-huh. to some degree. Exactly. They've, they've, yep, this, this, right. this is a huge multi, multi, multi-billion dollar uh, company mm-hmm. and the yep. share price has more than doubled over the last 10 years. A big, big part of it would, would be that, yeah. Yep, very good reason for it. Mate, Tom, we're going to can we talk? Again can we talk AGL? To. I've been dying. Oh, I'm dear. busting. I'm busting to talk about oh, AGL. Uh, have we got time? Unfortunately, we do have time. <laughs> That's disappointing. Uh, Andrew, on Sunday, uh, there was an article in the paper. Might have been Saturday. That apparently, uh, I like one of, one of the guys in the one of the authors today. I can't remember his name. Was writing about the Brooks brothers, Mike Cannon Brooks and Brooke Field. <laughs> it's, a, it's a slight. It's a slight. Uh, it's a slight. Uh, what do they call it when you take a bit of a poetic license? Poetic yeah, license. Yeah. But yes, the Brooks brothers, Mike Cannon Brooks and Brooke Field, uh, lobbed an $8 billion bid for AGL. Mm. And all the attention was on shutting down their coal-fired power plants. Mm. Uh, AGL said, nah, we're not doing that. Who are you kidding? Dude, what a surprise. Yeah, It started a whole lot of commentary in the political sphere, in the business sphere, in the environmental sphere. Uh I set the scene, mate. You obviously have some things you want to say. What do you? Uh, what would you like to share, that listener? I just thought. Of, I look. I, I'll, I'll put it out there. I'm a bit of a fanboy of of uh, Mike Cannon Brooks. I think he's awesome. Is <laughs> um, you know we've got a lot of we've got a few billionaires in Australia. Most of them don't cover themselves in glory. I'll just say without mentioning any names. But but Mike Mike's <laughs> one of don't. Mike's. We can't one afford of, to get sued by some of these people. Yeah, well, look, they we know they're pretty litigious too. So I ain't saying uh-huh. anything beyond Good that. Man. But he's he's a good guy, um, and he's also he's also um, not an idiot. So yeah, and and neither is Brookfield. So mm-hmm. AGL um, is in a really difficult situation. They've got these let's let's call a spade a spade. They've got these massive stranded assets. Mm-hmm. They're going to be worth zero. It's just a question of when you want to when you want to put a time frame on that. But it's happening, yeah. and they've effectively done that too. By the way, so AGL themselves have said these things have a finite life. At some point, we will shut them down. Yeah. So that, that's not controversial in the slightest. No. They've said we can't and, and uh, Origin brought forward the closure of its Iraring, I want to say I think it's pronounced, yeah, yeah, power plant to 2025 for the same reason. They simply, <laughs> they're, not, they're, not, they're not financially viable after some they're point. Not, here's the point that really frustrates me. These guys are not environmentalists. In fact, I think it's a really important consideration in all of this as society and I don't want to go mm-hmm. down that mm-hmm. rabbit hole but this is what's <laughs> interesting. I can put all of that aside. Yep. Origin is doing is shutting is bringing forward the, the closure of that plant for mm. no other reasons than hard nosed economic yes, correct, financial. Correct, correct. That is why they yep. are doing it. Yep. So AGL has um, they, they actually a few years ago had a CEO who was saying we need to transition, we need to pivot now. Correct. He got the boot. They put someone in who was much friendlier towards <laughs> uh, 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 fossil fuel interests. And they just delayed and they twiddled their thumbs. And surprise, surprise, shares have gone from, what, 25 bucks, yep. geez, back in 2017 to $7, uh, something. Mm-hmm. In fact, much lower than that, uh, not, not too long ago. It's, it, it strikes me as it's like the media companies in the 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like the, the world is changing and it – Yes, I get it. It sucks when you own all these big coal-fired power plants. But, but, you know, you can shake your fist at the sky or you can embrace mm. the reality and you can plan and you can transition for it. It's going to cost mm. money. Mm. Yes, everything else being equal, it would be much better if you could run these for another 60 years and et cetera. But that's just – that's not the reality. And and so the, with what, what um, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Brookfield are doing is basically saying – we think we can do a better job of it. I hundred percent think mm. that they can. Mm. They, they let's be real here. They will have. They will 
plan to close things early. Again, let me emphasize for hard-nosed economic reasons. Mm. Uh, it'll just do a lot of good for <laughs> our, our climate as well. AGL itself is 8% of our total national emissions. It's by far the mm. biggest producer. Um, but so there'll be a, a advanced accelerated write-downs. There'll be uh, some huge capex and capital expenditure as they bulk up their, their other renewables assets. But longer term, this is a really, really smart move. And mm. if I, I tweeted out the other day, um, you know, AGL, take the deal. <laughs> Take the deal <laughs> for the sake for the sake of of your shareholders, because this is a question of who do you think is, are going to be the better custodians of these assets, and who is who's going to take these assets and get the most value out of it. Both both teams face some big challenges, <laughs> but I would bet the innovative, bold uh, players with a vision who are going to act very fast and deliberately there will be first mover advantages in the mm. in in the in in the the company that can offer zero emission really and let's be let's also be clear much cheaper electricity much cheaper operating costs with these with these assets mm. you know the world's going that way you can you can wait until it's too late or you can you can take the lead on that and and I think I think this new team is 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 going to be the far better stewards of of this business. Now I don't necessarily disagree with any of that, mate. But uh, AGL is already has already announced plans to split itself anyway into those two: the good and That's, the bad business, the green and the brown business. Yeah. But what could it get? Why to help maximize shareholder value? Right? Is well, that, here's it, the thing, though. At that point. The takeover isn't as necessary anymore because they've separated those two businesses anyway, and those two businesses will live or die on their own. So, so from a purely from a takeover perspective, I, I, I like my kind of books as well. Don't get me wrong. From a pure business value perspective, they offered something like six percent, eight percent more than the current prevailing share price. At some future point, the businesses will be separated anyway into a effectively a, <laughs> to your point, stranded asset co. Yeah. <laughs> the, the kind of you know the the oops, they're going to die businesses and the businesses that have some degree of future potential and shareholders themselves can make that decision and that can be in theory already priced into the shares is it not given that share price fall given those those futures is this not more just simply an opportunistic bid from a couple of private equity blokes who want to take advantage of a cheap share price to buy a quality business? I mean, there's, when, when, when Canterbrooks buys something else or when someone else, you know, Andrew Forrest or someone else goes and buys this, does this deal with to buy something, they're buying it to create value because I think the assets are cheaper or sorry, are more valuable than the current price. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't disagree with your broad thesis, but I'm not entirely sure that taking the current share price, um, that these guys aren't getting a steal and maybe they are right to say, well, hang on, if you want this business, you have to pay more than the current share price. I mean, 6% premium is like kind of the current price, right? Why would I bother selling to you at that price? Why would I not just simply run it as we already are planning to do? Um, well, here's, yeah. my, here's, my, here's my prediction. Yeah, if, if the deal doesn't go through, what do you think is going to happen to the share price? Well, this is, the, this is the interesting part of it for me is that the share price is higher than the bid price. So the market is kind of, and I, I don't often, I sometimes feel sorry for company directors. Um, they, they don't have, they've almost been put in this position of like, there's got to be a deal done with someone now, right? Because mm. when you say, hey, you know, shares are trading a dollar, someone bids a dollar 10, the shares go a dollar 20, pick whatever multiple that you want to do. There is no, like there, there's no good outcome for the directors of the incumbent business, right? Because if they don't find a deal, the share price falls back to below where it was and someone blames them for the value loss. Yep. And it's kind of one of those, I don't know, it's, it feels like a bit of a, a tough old deal when someone says, how can you more than it's worth? You're like, well, I'm not going to take the money. Or I'm going to front shareholders and say why I think it's worth more. It's a bit of a, it's a bit like Altium. Altium's actually managed to do that. And so far at least has done reasonably well out of it. 
But ultimately, had the same problem of saying, you know, someone offered them 20% more than the business was currently trading for. They said, no, we think we can do a better job. The share price craters because it's going to when you say no to a takeover. Mm. And then you're kind of stuck with, well, I guess that's, you know, you don't choose that hand, right? You didn't go out and look for the deal. You didn't go out and ask for the bid. You literally just got stuck with, I guess now I'm in that, that position. I don't know, again, I'm not, I'm not um, defending AGL anytime soon, but it, it, just generally, I, I don't know. It feels, like a t- it feels like a tough head to be dealt if you're a company director. Well, I did do a very cynical tweet where I sort of said- You wouldn't have done that. I, I, like, I know it was a bit tongue in cheek, but so the direct, <laughs> you, you, but, you know, everyone sort of focuses on whether we admit it or not. We're very sort of self-interested creatures. Oh, of course we are. You're sitting in the board of AGL with you and your six or seven other directors. You're, collect, <laughs> you're taking home 2 million, 2. 2, I looked it up, $2.2 million a year. So right. if you you accepting this deal is saying I don't I don't I don't want these big fat board fees anymore. So it's kind of like <laughs> it's in the best interest of shareholders if we can, can continue to have our job and get these these. Okay, that's that's you a bit a unfair. Cynical, that's a bit unfair and a bit cynical, but perhaps perhaps not entirely untrue. But um, <laughs> I, I think this demerger uh, plan is mm. is. Mm. You're cutting up a pizza to use our oft-used yeah. analogy. <laughs> we do like, and one slice is over there, and it's got it's got all the yeah. anchovies and the stuff that yeah. no one likes on it. And this one's got all the I don't know the ham and pineapple and things that people mm-hmm. that are more more popular. Mm-hmm. But as a shareholder today, that demerger hasn't happened, so you're going to own both. And your point is, yes. well, you can make the choice and you can sell out of one. But in aggregate, from those two entities, yes, mm-hmm. they might be able to run a bit separately. Look, being speaking of being cynical, AGL is doing this. 100% entirely because they know that they've got this white elephant and they just want to get mm. it the hell off this book. We don't want anything to <laughs> That's what we're doing. We're going to focus on the thing. That, that's right. You know, but but yep. either, either way, as a shareholder today, you're still going to have ownership yep. in both of those and whatever you decide mm-hmm. to do subsequent to the fact doesn't change the, the aggregate value of that. Yes. So- yes. Uh, you, again, this is this is going to probably anger a few people, but oh, um, I, it, it's sort of- <laughs> I've got to be careful here because it was the head of Greenpeace who who did a tweet thread this morning. But just okay. and, and so people go, oh well, you know, they'll, they'll dismiss anything he has to say because of his his position. But yeah. I thought he made some really excellent points. He went back through the history of AGL and the decisions that they've made and the infighting, you know, shareholder revo- revolt mm. at, at meetings mm. with most shareholders voting for them to take mm. firmer action. They just they have dragged their heels. So this, as I said at the start, this is really a question of. The assets are the assets are the assets. Who's the better team to to maximise value? You've right. got a group, you've got a board and a management team that demonstrably have made really bad decisions. Again, mm. let's put the environmental stuff aside. Really bad mm. financial decisions to date. And they're saying, no, 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 trust us. We're going to be better. No, nah, things are going to be better <laughs> in the future. Maybe that, maybe it will. But then you've yeah. got someone else who's far more, as I say, uh, innovative, uh, long-term thinking, uh, you know, much more, I would say, very business savvy, not weighed down by certain ideological um, uh, realities and yeah. political influences. I just I, I, just think if I had to, if I owned these assets and I was choosing who I wanted to run them for me, mm-hmm. no competition, absolutely no competition at all. Yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, it's going to be, be tough. But as I say, this is... This, and this is the irony, right? Again, let's let's look at the media business back in the 2000s and, and the massive structural disruption that that was and how much damage it caused. Yeah. Actually, when looked at in the proper context, that was a brilliant opportunity. If, if you were some of these traditional outfits and you were the first movers to embrace the change to online, yeah, you would have killed your, bus- your existing business. But the, the amount, you would have been the one who owned the value that realestate.com mm-hmm. uh, captured. That, that car sales captured, 
that all these other classified businesses can. So we, you, yep. we, we, yep. you know, so, is it, so, so this is, this is the same situation here. Mm-hmm. Is, is this existing parts of this business going to zero? Yes, it will. Do mm-hmm. you have like an incumbent advantage in terms of the, the, the access to capital, expertise right. within the grid, et cetera, et cetera? Who is the, in, on paper, these incumbents have every opportunity to create incredible amounts of value long-term for shareholders, mm-hmm. but they won't do it because they, they're too worried about clutching onto this this, <laughs> this fading thing that they've got. Whereas I think people like Cannon Brooks and Brookfields, they, they actually see this for the opportunity as, as, as what it is, even though that, that entails short-term to medium-term pain. And I'm not, I want to dismiss that. It's, it's there no matter what. But, but they're, they're, they, are, they are going to, I would, I would strongly bet, they're gonna they're gonna look after shareholders much more than than these people who have had a demonstrable record of failure and acting slow and dragging their heels and denying reality, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. I think that's I think that's a really good point, mate. I, I've I've used the example before an Amazon shareholder as our listeners well and truly know. Uh, but Jeff Bezos, when he when he was looking at ebooks, uh, when people were saying oh, ebooks will kill the book industry, and if you're Amazon, you're the world's biggest bookstore. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's nothing more damaging potentially than that. And so you can either say, well, let's protect our book business or you can say, I, I can see the future. Yeah. And not only, did he, not only did he invest in the Kindle, which is by far and away uh, the biggest ebook reader in the world, but he also sent the team across the country. Mm. And the idea was, don't let the book guys tell you not to do this. Mm. Don't let them slow you down. Don't let them make it a problem. Go and build this business for me because we've got a dog in each fight. And if the book business dies, then she will be glad we've got the ebook business. Yep. And if it doesn't, then we won't have, we haven't killed the ebook business, the, the, the book business to do ebooks. We're, we're, we're literally having two bets in that same in that same. Frame, in an alternate in an alternate reality, hmm. uh, Jeff Bezos said, "No, no, no. This we're, we're not doing exactly. that. We're just going to focus purely on books." And that business is far, far, far smaller than it is today. Exactly. I mean, I, and Kodak's the easy example where yep. Kodak literally invent the digital camera and then say, "Well, let's not do that because it'll hurt our film business." Yep. Now you know it's, it's obvious in hindsight what was the right, and you can't you can't jump at every single possible change because if you spent your life you know trying to be or create or confront or combat every single potential you know business killer, you, you drive yourself nuts. You make nothing. You do nothing else. Mm. But if you make some reasonably sized bets on reasonably well advanced. I call them technologies, but whatever it is, products, services, ideas. Um, you know, Nokia who said, well, you know, or even Microsoft. Who's going to use a touchscreen phone? Everyone wants a hard keyboard. Mm. Well, mm. turns out not so much, yeah. right? Yeah. And had they made a bet at that point and said, we'll do both and see what happens. We may well have seen a, a different story. Now, Microsoft's done perfectly fine as a result, but their Microsoft phone doesn't exist anymore and there's there's very good reason for that. So I think that's a, that's a really, really good point, mate. I also think there's an advantage outside Cannon Brooks. He's, he's the lightning rod, right? This, what I think is interesting here is that he's getting caught up, as much as he is also, by the way, the innovator and, and someone you want on your side. If it was just Brookfield buying AGL and doing this stuff, it'd be a very different conversation. Brookfield simply says, hey, I can buy AGL's business for $7 something a share, $8 billion. Mm. I'm going to take it private. I'm going to make those investments outside the glare of the stock market where I don't have to ex- convince shareholders every single day, week, month, quarter what I'm doing and why mm. and why this isn't riskier than it looks. And yes, I'm going to kill coal, but it's because the, the future is going this way. It's a much harder thing to do. And again, not to defend the AGL board, but mm. it's so much easier to do as a private equity mob, right? You know, Amazon, Amazon. if this, you know, Barnes & Noble tried to build a book reader mm. and Barnes & Noble effectively died. The Kobo book reader, I think, got sold to somebody else from memory. Um, I've still got my Kobo and, somewhere. Yeah, and, well, that, you know, and, they, and they, had, they had every opportunity. Blockbuster and Netflix, same thing, right? If you, 
Why did they not do it? For all the reasons you just said, they're trying to maintain their existing business. They're trying to build walls and, and, and you know circle the wagons, all that kind of stuff. Rather than saying the future is here, mm. let's at least be part of it. And if it dies, then we wasted some money on a on a new idea that never got traction. If it succeeds, geez, we're glad we did streaming music because Netflix might have killed us otherwise. Turns out that's exactly what happens. So yeah. it's an important it's an important one to think about. I think you're right. I I don't actually know. I don't claim to know how much value Cannonbrook brings to energy generation and retail as, as, a, as a businessman. I do think he is someone who will challenge the status quo and try and find different ways to do it. And Brookfield is a private equity mob. Just say, I want to turn my dollar into $2. Mm-hmm. And if they think they can see an opportunity to do that, they're not mad, right? As you said, this environment aside, these aren't buying the asset to be, to be environmental heroes. Brookfield kind of individually, might the, the people might care. It's not there to say to its shareholders, what we're going to do is we're going to torch shareholder capital to have a positive impact on the economy. Is that okay with you guys? No. Yeah, now, you know, individual, individually the shareholders might say, well, maybe, but as a business, that's not what they're there for. They're to make a buck. They're to turn $1 into two. Mm. They think this is the way to do it. And I think that's the hardest part for ideology to sometimes accept is this is happening. As you say, the media example is a wonderful one of, hey, <laughs> you know, classifieds are here, even streaming. Yeah. You know, Nine Entertainment Company's done a really nice job, actually, despite everything else of moving into the digital world belatedly and, yep. and probably not sufficiently. But some of the work they're doing now on, they've got the domain shareholding, they've got their Nine Now platforms. Mm-hmm. They're bringing shows straight to the Nine Now platform and using it as a pure streaming platform. Mm. Uh, and they've done a really nice job of growing that. Now, it's not big enough yet. Stan Sport, really good move. Uh, I'll give I'll give News Corp a wrap. I think that was at 21st Century Fox, whoever it is these days. The KO app is fantastic. Mm. And Foxtel could have been could have been forgiven for saying, well, "No way, we're going to destroy you know cable TV. It's our it's our lifeblood." Mm. They went, "No, no, actually, we're going to do binge, and we're going to do KO, and we're going to recognise that things are changing." Again, belatedly, way too late, but they might just pull it out of the fire because they've done a really good job of creating a product that people like and works nicely. But you've got to look forward. You can't circle the wagons and hope you know finger in the ears, uh, hope that nothing changes because that's just simply not sustainable. Yeah, I, I think one of the the real advantages that um, the new potential owners have is is that they don't have the incentives of the market <laughs> to yes, compete. Yeah. So, so the, the, the short term. as a public company you are, you've got people rightly or wrongly, mm-hmm. wrongly, um, saying, you know, <laughs> because all of all of these things are just gonna cost you're gonna cost you mm-hmm. money short term. So, yep. so, but yes, exactly, and so it's gonna. It's very hard to do to sort of say, "Hey, everyone, we're gonna we're gonna torch a bunch of your cash for the next few years." But don't worry, it's gonna be great yep. long term. It's just harder to yep. do as a private yep. entity. You can make those decisions. Mm. And again, mm. I would emphasize the point that this is absolutely a a smart economic thing to do. A little mm. bit of a shout out here for a book I recently read, which I just loved. I, I mentioned it to you off air last week. You did. Uh, I saw Griffith, uh, the Big Switch. Uh, Aussie engineer, uh, entrepreneur. He's, he's just basically laid out the. It, it, it sounds a bit hackneyed and corny, but it's just like we really could be the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy. And he's basically saying, you know what, we should do this. A for the environment. That's probably a pretty good reason because you know, it'd be nice to have sustained life on Earth beyond the next hundred years. Um, but but actually, we can we can all of us save massive, the average household spends something like five grand a year on, on power uh, and gas and the rest of it. It's like mm. we could actually have that for uh, you know, for pennies on the dollar in terms of our cost. We can we can start to be the world manufacturers of, of value. So at the moment we dig up our rocks and we send them to China to get turned into mm. steel. 
It's like, well, why don't we actually make green steel here with all the surplus energy that we can that we can generate? Mm. Uh, what about all the jobs that that will create? So this is he he just lays out this really strong vision for for the the, the geopolitical advantages, the mm. economic advantages, the health and society benefit. It's just like there's just. It, there is just no reason why you wouldn't do this. It's just going to be a difficult multi-decade transition. But at the end of it, Australia is an absolute economic powerhouse with more jobs, lower costs, bigger export value-add industries and the rest of it. And I think why I'm so optimistic on Mike Cannon-Brooks and because I know that him and Saul are mates. And uh, in fact, you know, Mike Kennan Brooks is on the cover of the book saying, read it. <laughs> so I, so I, I feel as though I've got a good insight into his thinking and that, yeah, that right. he is making this not, not as an activist. He's making this because he sees huge long-term value creation. And as I, again, I'll just reiterate the point. If these were my assets and I needed someone to run it, I would much prefer to take, uh, take back this particular horse, who even though they, they, it's going to be tough for the first few years because I know longer term I'm much better served than someone who's going to kick and scream the whole way down and be left in the dust. And that, that's your decision. I think we're done, mate. Did you get sufficient time to rant on EDL? Uh, I just I, – I so hope it. I so hope it. Hey, can I – one more thing and then we better go. <laughs> so – and this is this is not to rant on in so, another fanboyish fan way. So what Elon Musk did with electric cars – uh, yeah. We can talk about Tesla. We can talk about how crazy Elon is with a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff to say. But what, <laughs> what he did was he brought the transition to electric vehicles forward by at least a decade, if not more, mm-hmm. because we had this first mover problem. And I think all the basic car manufacturers thought, well, the world is going to go that way, <laughs> but we've got so much existing investment in yeah. this sort of old way that we're going to just continue to run it for as long as we have to. And then Elon- Which, by the way, is super smart, right? If you can get away with running yep. existing car plants for, forever- it, there's no reason not to. Do you want to, if you're a Toyota, do you want to retool your right. entire manufacturing line? Like, no, you do not want to do that. <laughs> exactly. So, but Elon, yep. Elon said, "Well, I'm doing it, and I'm starting from scratch, so I've got a big advantage there." Mm. And he, and and he just, and then all of a sudden, these things are just outselling in in all, you know, in most of these mm. jurisdictions, mm. and it's just like mm. they've they've got no choice or the existing incumbents but to switch over. I mm. suspect that there's some parallels there with what Mike Cannon-Brooks is, is doing yeah, interesting idea. in the yeah, sense yeah. that the Australian energy industry is sort of in this, again, they all know, they all know, Origin knows, <laughs> AGL knows, they all know what's coming, but who's mm. going to make the first move? And I think by them, someone coming in and saying, we're doing it and we're doing it seriously and we're doing it hard mm. and we're going mm. to move fast, it changes everything for the industry and all the others will go, oh God, okay, we knew it was coming. <laughs> Turns out this guy's making it harder for us. We're going to, it's happening. So it, 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 things, I'm actually, uh, it's made me optimistic that things will change and when that they mm. change, the change will be very, very, very rapid. And I hope so because right. we do need a rapid change. I like it. That's probably us, mate. Should we uh, come back on Sunday and talk about things other than AGL and our environmental passion? Oh, I hope someone write, writes in a question about AGL because then we can keep going. I think it's I can't wait to see how this play out. But yes, I'm 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 gonna be back for sure. Uh hot tip. If they have written in about AGL, I'm not gonna <laughs> We have other things to talk about, but we will come back on Sunday. Thank you, fools, for spending some time listening to us. If you want to get uh, a look at Andrew's snarky tweets, follow him at Sage <laughs> underscore Simeon for a little bit of Andrew Ram Pages trademark snark. Uh, otherwise, follow at Strawman Invest for um, a little more sedate company stuff about Strawman. You should do that too. Uh, while you're there on the Twitter or Instagram, you can follow me at TMF Scott P or The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. Follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Scott Phillips Money or Facebook.com slash The Motley Fool Australia and 
If you want to email us, do that too. Info at fool.com.au. Hot tip, don't email me about AGL. The question will absolutely not make it to my mailbag episode this week. Maybe ask uh, it about maybe. the broader energy industry. <laughs> yeah, that way. Might. Anyway, uh, let's let's move on from that one. Thank you, Fools, for spending a little bit of time with us. We look forward to talking to you on Sunday. And until then, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.